Climate change is out of the box. We're living into a, a context we've never seen before. That means our environment in Boulder is gonna be much more similar to what's in Albuquerque today than to what we've become accustomed to and think of as Boulder. And therefore we ought to be thinking about who lives in Albuquerque? Not just people, but who are all the other beings that live in Albuquerque who might be wanting to move into our environment? Now we're gonna be living in a world that is full of change and we have to develop a culture that's much, much better at how to do change. I'm Leah Kelleher. And I'm Murray Washburn. And the voice you heard at the start of this episode was Brett Kincaren. You're listening to Let's Talk Boulder. City of Boulder podcast, exploring our community one conversation at a time. Last episode, we dug into how wildfires are made hotter, less predictable, more devastating, and frequent by our changing climate. We also talked about the different types of fire, good, bad, and really everything in between. So if you haven't checked out that episode, We encourage you to pause this one and go give it a listen. It'll help you understand some of the concepts we'll be discussing in this episode. And speaking of concepts, one of the key takeaways from last episode was that the connection between the climate crisis and wildfire has a lot to do with water. Drier, hotter conditions that are being exacerbated by our changing climate are quite literally sucking moisture out of our landscape And that lack of moisture is really what's at the heart of the big, vast, and hot fires we're seeing more and more. We're going to talk about some of the tools we use to fight fire before it happens. Tools that help us create a more resilient, healthy landscape where people and other local life can thrive. And we've got a lot of tools in our toolbox from prescribed burns to nature-based climate solutions And we need all of them because some don't work well in certain situations. We'll get to that in a little bit. But first, let's take a step back. I hear the word resilience used a lot these days, especially in the world of climate communications, the work that I do. We've actually already used it a couple times to introduce this episode. How would you define resilience, Mariette, specifically when thinking about wildfire resilience? When I think about wildfire resilience, I think about the whole spectrum from an individual house to an entire community to really just our whole ecosystem and how capable it is at withstanding, at the very least, at withstanding the good fire and having good fire be useful to it. So I think about One of the first fires I was ever on was the Cold Springs Fire up near Nederland, and there's a great photo of a house 360 degrees around the house burned, but the house stayed standing. We always say there's probably a little bit of luck, but there's also some work that was done to be able to build enough barrier to help provide that resilience. We could do a whole episode about preparing homes, yards, and businesses for wildfire, and we did. That's next episode. And then in the bigger picture, what can we do as a community and as a larger group to help 
help everyone be able to achieve that and feel safer and more ready for the next big fire that's going to happen. Here's Brett Kincaren from our climate team. He leads the city's nature-based climate solutions work, which we'll dig into later. I think of resilience as the counterpoint to sustainability. Sustainability is basically built on the premise that we want the thing that's going on now to stay relatively the same, and we just need to figure out how to keep things going like that. Resilience is about the recognition that, in fact, all systems change. The world is not going to keep staying the same. So if I keep configuring myself as if the world isn't changing, then ultimately that thing that I'm doing becomes less and less adapted to what's really the world. And that's what's happening around us. Our systems are breaking down because they're no longer adaptive to the world that we actually live in. And so resilience is about how do we now live in a change world? Yeah, and it's a way to do something within that change. I think that's part of the idea of resilience in general is being capable and willing to work on something throughout the change, even if we're not glad the change is happening per se. We'd rather have less fires. And that doesn't appear to be the direction we're going. But we do have some tools to build resilience in the face of climate change. Let's talk about those tools. Maria, I figured we'd start with prescribed burns. First off, what are they? And what is the right term to use? I've heard both prescribed fire and prescribed burns. Right now, here locally, we're using the phrase prescribed burns. The word we try to stay away from as much as possible is control. We don't do a controlled burn. They used to be called that, but we don't want to create this false perception that we're ever in control of fire. We're not superheroes. We don't have the, like, X-Men powers. It's more of setting something on fire in such a prescribed way that we are confident in our ability to contain that fire. There are different types of burns, right? I've heard you talk about prescribed burns, burn piles, agricultural burns. How are they similar and how are they different? You bring up a good point that there's different types of burns. So a prescribed burn, you're basically just setting the ground on fire. The burn piles or the agricultural burns that we do where we'll burn along a ditch or we'll burn piles of fuel that we've cut. And we're not the first people to use fire to manage the landscape. Indigenous peoples have been using prescribed fire for millennia. It's a very complex process to go through and actually put fire on the ground. It's not something we do on a whim. This is Carrie Webster with our Open Space and Mountain Parks Department. Her work focuses on building wildfire resilience here in Boulder. Okay, back to Carrie. It's a process that involves our ecologists who come up with some objectives and work with fire managers to write a prescribed burn plan to meet said objectives. The general objective is to reduce buildup of hazardous fuels in a forest. Like low tree limbs, dead trees, tall grass and other woody brush. Burning this material up reduces the amount of potential fuel for the next wildfire. But it also helps return nutrients to the soil and sometimes creates helpful habitat for wildlife. We're now learning that the way fires can help reduce and recycle vegetation in our forests is incredibly helpful. And so if we don't burn off those overly dense, unhealthy forests, because those are the ones that can fuel really large, high-intensity wildfires, we can be in a better place if we're burning those off. It's 
a process that we work through with Colorado Public Health and Environment through the Air Quality Division. So just so you know, when we do go through and use prescribed fire as one of our tools, it is done in a very calculated manner. It's a fire that you plan ahead for. You make sure all of the boxes are checked with weather and the wind and where the smoke's going to go and what the fuel loads are and will it be able to burn, but it won't burn too fast. And we determine through fire behavior modeling and experience what conditions we can and cannot burn in. Even if all of the other boxes can get checked, but you don't have enough resources, if things go sideways, then we still won't do fires. So there's so much that goes into it. Mm. And there's a change in climate to consider. Because of the fuels drying out at rates we aren't used to, at times of year we're not used to, we're not necessarily getting the same fire effects at the end of our prescribed burns that we were anticipating. And days we burn and what parameters we burn under is also shifting. From just a planning standpoint, that impacts where we put our resources or when we have resources. That was Chris Warner. He manages vegetation on our open space and mountain parks. I just have to wonder whether prescribed fire is going to be the tool that we thought it could be given the fire windows that we have, which are so limited now. Brett is bringing up a great point. As the climate continues to change and our windows to do prescribed burns get smaller, we need different tools to fight fire before it happens. We need tools that help build healthy soils that can absorb and retain water. What we need to be managing for, especially in the West, is water. And if we were managing towards retaining and cycling water in our landscapes, that is our best defense. My name is Zach Hedstrom. I'm the owner of Boulder Mushroom. We're a local center for fungi, mushroom cultivation, education, and using fungi in innovative ways to address climate change-related issues, such as soil degradation, wildfire risk, and other things. A mushroom is a fruit. Sometimes we call it the fruiting body. So you can liken a mushroom to an apple on an apple tree. And the mycelium, this is a network of cells, a net-like structure which grows inside of some kind of substrate. It might be underground or it might be within wood or rotting pine cones, leaf litter, things like that, wherever it's living, but that is the body. So the mycelium is like the apple tree and the mushroom is like the apple. Okay, folks who know me know I could nerd out about fungi all day, but we should probably bring it back to wildfire and water. Zach's been working with the Boulder Watershed Collective to study how quickly fungi break down wood, wood piles and wood chips that are created during wildfire management. Essentially, we're taking mycelium and introducing it into whatever material that we want it to be growing in. This process is called inoculation. For those who don't know, the Watershed Collective is a local nonprofit based here in Boulder, and they work to protect our forested waterways, build resilience, and they help our community be good stewards of the land that feeds into our water system. Mycelium are playing a lot of roles simultaneously while they're decomposing material, and this is one of the things that we're targeting with some of these projects. Fungi are able to decompose waste material and turn it into 
biologically active soil. Soil which is full of life. Healthy soil is full of life. It's full of fungi, it's full of bacteria, it's full of protozoa, little invertebrates, worms, things like that. And this is an ecosystem in and of itself, underground, microscopic ecosystem. So mycelium, fungi, could be a way to deal with all the woody material that's created when we're chopping off low tree limbs, clearing brush. Historically, smaller fires would have cleared a lot of this brush and fuel out, but we live in an age of fire repression for a good reason. There's homes and infrastructure in forest environments, so we have to be careful with fires. Yeah, prescribed fire can create a lot of smoke, and just like we can't control flames, we can't control wind, we can't prevent a cloud of smoke settling on the city. But that being said, repressing fires means that that fuel just builds up and builds up, and then when a fire does come through, it can be incredibly devastating like we've seen in the past. So one of those solutions is to inoculate it with fungi and turn it back into soil. Mycelium and fungi helps with moisture retention. Inoculated wood chips can hold two to three, even four times the amount of moisture in the mycelium than a non-inoculated wood chip or a wood chip that doesn't have any kind of fungi growing in it. That's an absolutely staggering amount of additional moisture that's being held in those systems. And the reason is because you could think of the mycelium as like a sponge. So when the mycelium grows through the wood chips, it actually glues all of those wood chips together via a very dense mycelial network. Mm -hmm. And when moisture reaches that mycelial network, it essentially is absorbed into the sponge. When we talk about landscape regeneration, drought resistance, rejuvenating soil, sometimes the phrase absorbent landscapes comes up. We're back to water. And when those systems start capturing water, then they become hydrated, less fire prone, and they start to become the seed beds for a whole bunch of other life. We need landscapes which are able to catch and hold that moisture. It's really incredible. You can dig through wood chips that are inoculated with fungi, and it might be really dry outside, and you'll feel moisture in your hands because they're holding onto that because they survive on that. If we actually start to rehydrate our landscapes, they are so much more resilient and productive and they can deliver so many more ecosystem services, nutrient-dense food, clean water, clean air. Zach and the folks he's collaborating with are actually starting to spread mycelium-filled wood chips on one of the city's open space properties. And we believe that it's going to help in a couple of ways. It's going to build biological activity within the soil. It's going to cool the soil surface. It's going to slow the flow of water and help with the uptake of moisture in that land. And I'm really excited about this project for a couple of reasons. It's innovative, it's nature-based, and it's also very collaborative. Zach is also working with Grandma Grass and Livestock. Which is a rotational grazing organization using rotational grazing to provide high-quality grass-fed beef and as a tool for landscape regeneration. This actually brings us to another tool in our wildfire resilience toolbox, grazing and vegetation management. That's one of the options or one of the tools in our toolbox. When we talk about grazing, we're usually talking about cattle, sometimes goats, 
eating tall grasses and other vegetation that could be fuel for a fire. Right. In places like where the Encar fire was. The Encar fire burned southwest of Table Mesa near the National Center for Atmospheric Research. It wasn't a very big fire, about 190 acres, and firefighters were able to contain it rather quickly. And the fire was actually pretty helpful in that it burned up some of the fuels, those grasses and brush that were building up. That wasn't anywhere we'd do a prescribed fire. It's too close to the city. That's probably a burn that we would not have been able to pull off as, as a prescribed burn. You know, it's, it's just not in an area where you could draw a line and, and keep it in the box. So the NCAR fire was a, a perfect illustration that in some, if not many, we hope many instances of fire, if we have been able to get in there and do appropriately designed fuel hazard reduction, Grazing or forest thinning or restoring our forests that have had fire suppression over 100 plus years and using thinning and mechanical thinning folks out there with chainsaws to to mimic fire and, and reduce some of that density. We can not only reduce the damage that happens, but we might actually be able to significantly enhance those systems. the tools we've talked about so far, grazing, forest thinning, fungi, they all fall into an umbrella of solutions that we call nature-based climate solutions. And actually, we could call prescribed burns nature-based climate solutions too, because they're a natural part of our landscape. But all of these tools, all of these nature-based climate solutions, explore how we, humans, can harness what the natural world already does. And how what it already does can actually address, repair, and enhance what we're going to need more of. More shade, more water absorption capacity, more nutrient-dense food, more clean air, more clean water, because we have so degraded all of those fundamental life support systems. We can see how land is drying out across our region. And when there's not enough moisture to support vegetation, what were once green pastures turn into desert. When it gets to that state, scientists call the soil degraded. Picture the Dust Bowl, huge clouds of soil blowing off of fields. That's what's really at stake due to climate change. When you look at millions of acres of degraded farm soil, what do you do about that? The answer is make soil, make millions of acres of soil. Now, obviously, that's much easier said than done, but you can put it into a formula. How do you build a handful of soil? How do you build, you know, a bucket of soil? How do you build one acre of soil? And then how do you do a million of them? And I think a lot of folks might forget that we face multiple crises around the fact that our systems aren't sustainable. Climate is one, biodiversity crisis, the extinction of species is another, the rapid advance of deserts, not just in Africa, but literally in our own backyards. All of these are consequences of systems that aren't sustainable. So the notion of nature-based solutions to climate change is really, I hope, about a larger field of recognizing that we have to change our relationship to the larger living world into one of reciprocity, or we're not going to be around here that much longer. 
so many parts of the living world are just waiting for us to recognize that they're there. And we've already recognized a bunch of them. Pollinator gardens that support our butterflies and bees and birds, all of that beautiful, vibrant biodiversity that we want. Absorbent landscapes that hold on to moisture and carbon, a healthy urban forest with connected tree canopies that cool our neighborhoods. Let's chat about trees for a second because they also connect to fire. Forests seed clouds. They literally do. There are dynamics of transpiration and the microbial things that are on the surfaces of those needles that are sending up particulates that then become parts of that water cycle. Essentially, the moisture in trees helps increase moisture in the air, and that creates more cloud cover. Trees also create shade, and shade means less water needs. They can actually lower the irrigation needs for the surrounding area because those areas aren't being subjected to such full sun. They're not getting that really hot direct sunlight, all that evaporation off of the ground. But then when there are storm events, their root systems go deep and they go wide. They can help hold that water into the soil. This is Regina Elsner. I work for the City of Boulder Parks and Recreation Department. I supervise and lead our urban forestry team as well as our natural lands team and our urban park rangers. Regina's team works to keep trees in our city healthy. Many healthy trees equals a connected tree canopy. A healthy urban canopy helps to mitigate heat island effect. So all of that heat that gets absorbed by asphalt and concrete and buildings and then is radiated back out into the environment When we have trees, that helps shade those buildings. It helps shade those areas. And there's actually research that surface temperature can be as many as 20 degrees lower in areas that have urban canopy. And they absorb and store carbon dioxide, which is a climate-warming greenhouse gas. We set a goal of having approximately 16% urban canopy throughout the city. There's somewhere in the neighborhood of 600,000 trees. And it's really interesting when you start to dive in a little bit more in depth about where we have canopy, where we're lower on canopy, brings in this whole equity conversation about where those areas with lower canopy cover tend to be some of our areas with historically underserved populations. And so how do we best serve those communities as well? This is a great question, and it's actually been a focus for Brett's team. And with the help of community members Last summer, we actually mapped heat across our city on one of the hottest days of the year. And we found that areas with very little vegetation and a high proportion, a high number of hard surfaces like roads and parking lots were much hotter than places with trees and other plants, as much as 17 degrees hotter. We'll include a link to those heat maps in our show notes in case you're curious. Okay. We've already discussed a lot of tools, and I'm sure there's more we could dig into, but instead, I'd like to zoom out a little bit. We have a team dedicated to exploring these questions and creating wildfire resilience strategies. We've called them the Wildfire Core Team. We have representatives, obviously, from fire, open space and mountain parks, parks and recreation, climate initiatives, uh, utilities. There's also a representative from the county, Office of Disaster Management. It's really an effort 
for all of those departments to come together to help our community be more resilient to wildfire impacts. You may be already getting a sense of this. Building wildfire resilience is expensive work, but the passing of our climate tax last November, I think shows that our community is committed to creating a more wildfire resilient city. One and a half million dollars of the money collected each year is dedicated to wildfire resilience efforts. I think we've really made an effort to pull all the right people into the room. And I think there's a little bit of momentum that's followed the recent fires and the fact that we all need to kind of put our heads together on how we how we address this. One of the first projects this team is working on is getting a new community wildfire protection plan. This plan is going to help identify our wildfire risks across the city, the tools that we could use to reduce those risks, and then provide us with some suggestions on where we could best focus those tools. Yeah, I think it's super exciting to see people in our community, those who work for the city and those who don't, like Zach, come together to work toward common goals, those goals being resilience and safety. This episode of Let's Talk Boulder was produced and edited by me, Leah Kelleher. With the help of me, Mari Washburn, and our City of Boulder colleagues. Special thanks to all the folks featured in this episode. Carrie Webster, Brett Kincaren, Regina Elsner, Zach Hedstrom, and Chris Warner. Give our show notes a quick look for wildfire resilience resources, music attributes, and more. <laughs>